we have the genes that we have. Children have the genes that they have. But the shape that children have ultimately is formed by those genes plus the movement environment that they are within. You're listening to the Untaming Podcast. Rewild the child. Here is your host, Emily. Hi, I'm Emily and this is the Untaming Podcast. Today it is the new honeymoon here in the Southern Hemisphere and this is episode 50. I loved chatting with Peter Michael Bowett in the last episode all about exploring other ways of rewilding, understanding civilization, diminishing returns and collapse. I hope you liked it too. Remember, if you like these episodes, please feel free to give them a rating on iTunes or even just send me a message to give me your thoughts. Today's long-awaited episode with biomechanist Katie Bowman will be the final one for this season, but I have something new coming to keep you entertained during the off-season. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Katie. She's a very busy person and there were some things we didn't get to that I really would have liked to share with you. So I'm going to read a couple of excerpts out to you from her books and her podcast transcripts. This first one is on eyesight. This is from her transcript. I've just taken out some of the banter between her and Danny. If you want to listen to her whole episode, it's number 45 and it's called Natural Movement and Eyes. This is a quote from a really great article that if you're interested in this, you can just go Google and find it. It's called The Myopia Boom. East Asia has been gripped by an unprecedented rise in myopia, also known as short-sightedness. 60 years ago, 10-20% to of the Chinese population was short-sighted. Today, up to 90% of teenagers and young adults are. In Seoul, a whopping 96.5% of 19-year-old men are short-sighted. And to follow on from this, an excerpt from her book Move Your DNA. Myopia has risen to epidemic proportions in Asia, a rise long blamed on book reading or other near work like using computers and tablets. While the genes for nearsightedness are certainly at play, myopia is extremely rare in hunter-gatherer populations, leading researchers to look for more specific environmental factors that reduce our ability to see far away. Research shows that cultures historically without books show an increase in nearsightedness once reading or other hallmarks of a civilised environment, like night lighting, are introduced. But more recent research, specifically looking at reading, shows that time spent outdoors might be the factor worth looking at instead. When looking at things close up, the ciliary muscles in our eyes contract. But whether you're reading or not, most of the objects we look at all day long are indoors and still relatively close to us. For home dwellers, this means that even when you're not looking at your computer or book, the furthest object from your face is, what, 20 feet away? The natural loads to the eyes include looking over many different distances. We've got super near and kind of near covered, but to really load the eyes in a different way, we must look at objects really far away, a process that facilitates the relaxation of tense eye muscles. 
And so next I have an excerpt from her podcast transcript, episode number 29, called The Skin Show. So here's where the whole thing started with me. While I was talking about skin for every woman's guide to foot pain relief, but here, someone posted on Facebook, the source of all genius thoughts, was an article about Native Americans having, who were excellent trackers before they went into the Vietnam War, but then upon having to get the military cut, they lost their tracking abilities. It was like a huge article, and you know, I read it and I was like, I've always been interested in hair, I've always been interested in erector pili muscles, why hair is more concentrated in certain locations of the body, you know, how the effects of, like I'm always thinking in terms of loads, so what about short hair versus long hair? We're in a world where you don't have, you know, access to major cutting tools, like how did that change the loads to everything? Because like you've got hair, but it's hanging on your skin, which is hanging on your connective tissue, which is hanging on your bones. So there's loads. There are loads to your head from having a huge head of hair. So I think that hair is fascinating in that there's clearly a large role for hair. Whether or not we think about them is a different matter, but it doesn't mean that they don't exist just because we don't really think about them. And finally, a couple of excerpts from her latest book, Grow Wild. For thousands of years, eating took a lot of human power, human movements necessary to search for, gather, grow, cultivate and process plants and animals into food. Eating well also required equally abundant nature literacy, the education necessary to develop the ability to read things like animals and plants, seasons and landscape. Every human, even young children to the best of their abilities, contributed their personal human power to feeding themselves, and thus the food system for each person was fairly small. You and your community did the labour directly for the stuff you ate, and all of that movement happened in nature. The, this is another um, excerpt from her book. The matter of feeding ourselves was the environment that used to move us the most, but it now takes very little personal movement time in nature, or knowledge of the plants and animals we consume. Eating today hardly requires any chewing. And now, the final excerpt. There is more to food than what's contained within it. The forces created when we chew plants and animals play a role in how our body works. Chewing, ripping, tearing, and swallowing provide the necessary mechanical stimulation to develop strong, optimal anatomy and function of jaws, face and throat muscles, vocal cords, eustachian tubes, sinuses, throat glands, the list goes on. So yeah, those are just a few of the things we didn't get to in this episode. If you enjoyed them, there's so much more in her books. I've read uh, Dynamic Aging, Move Your DNA, Movement Matters and Grow Wild, and I would honestly recommend them all. And I'm not profiting here from this at all. Uh, But now let's get to what Katie and I did cover. (music) 45-year-old Katie Bowman is an internationally recognized biomechanist. She is a best-selling author of nine books, a speaker and a leader in the movement movement. 
Her most recent book, Grow Wild, is about how to get kids from babies to preteens and their families moving more together outside. Katie directs and teaches at the Nutritious Movement Centre Northwest in Washington State, consults on research and on movement-rich community and educational space design, and spends as much time as possible moving outside with her husband and their two children. Last night she had 10 hours of sleep, and for breakfast today she had an egg in a hole, which is in a piece of sourdough with the egg cooked inside with sprouts and avocado. Katie, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you for having me. So I have a long list of topics in front of me that I'm looking forward to discussing with you. I don't know how far we'll get through them today, but we have had a few guests on in the past to talk about movement, so I think the listeners will have a good understanding by now on the basics of the topic. Um, I'm reading your latest book, Grow Wild, at the moment, and I really liked your introduction, Comparing Children to Trees. And I wondered if we could start with you briefly sharing this comparison with us. Yeah, well, I use trees because um, how how trees work, if you will, the shape that trees end up having is um, the relationship between the genes a tree has. So you can you can recognize a tree type based on its bark and its leaves, and if it has if it fruits, you know, we know enough to can spot the type of tree. But, but there's no exact two exact trees because the way that they're shaped, the, um, how they branch, the geometry of their branches is really based on the movement environment that they are within. It's, it's how the trees are loaded mechanically that determines how robust they will be and what particular geometry they will hold. Um, and, and, and so human bodies work similarly. We have the genes that we have. Children have the genes that they have. But the shape that children have ultimately is formed by those genes plus the movement environment that they are within. Um, so I, I, I used trees, I used plants really throughout the book mm. because because I think that it's easier to understand we're used to learning about facts about uh, other animals and and plants and biology, and we don't necessarily put those same processes on ourselves. We sort of we don't think of ourselves necessarily always as belonging to the animal kingdom, you know, if you mm. will. So I try to use other examples to let the lesson or the mechanical principle, the biomechanical principle, sink in, and then I can draw on. So this is why we would want to have these practices um for humans because like trees you know if you grow if a tree grows up inside of a greenhouse it ends up becoming not that robust of a tree it has a hard time surviving um and so if you're a gardener you might be familiar with plants that are transport transplanted from greenhouses into the outside so that's my argument for we need to get outside um, more often as adults, but especially as children, because we're setting our adult bodies and we end mm. up not being able to thrive as well because we just don't have that geometry or that shape that does well. Yes. And you, yeah, you also cover the many restrictions and limitations to our movement as humans in today's world, and also especially to children. Some that really strike me are our own restrictions we make as caregivers by unintentionally but by viewing their movement as naughty you know like 
climbing on tables or jumping on couches or, or seeing it as dangerous. Certainly. Yeah. So you described this as a like a cultural restriction to movement. So I'd like to hear a bit more of your thoughts here. Well, so it's just I organized the book by containers because of the or, you know, and they are all the greenhouse that we are in as growing plants or that children are in. And, you know, certainly walls and tangible items, we can understand how, you know, a tight shoe or uh, a house that blocks the outside you from being able to go out and, you know, tumble around in the yard that those can physically keep um, our body bodies or our body parts from moving fully, but rules are an invisible element of a greenhouse. They're the expectations or the, the societal norms even that have slowly trended towards sedentary behavior. And as parents especially are struggling between the notion that kids need more movement, but, but movement isn't always acceptable in many places. Um, they're sort of, I may be stressed by both of those things at the same time. And I talk about, well, what if you took a hard look at maybe the rules about movement in your home spaces? Could you change the rules or even change the setup of the area to, to, uh, allow for it or even encourage it that sometimes it's not always tangible, but it's often intangible blocks to movement that, uh, kids today are up against. Yes. Yeah. You know, my son has long hair and initially we chose to let it grow because we just didn't like how our culture dictates that long hair is only for girls. But then I learned that, correct me if I'm wrong, but that neither of your children have short hair. So am I correct in understanding that there is a movement aspect involved here with like hair length? Uh, Both of my children have long hair. Yeah. Yeah. I have one girl, one boy, Mm -hmm. and they both have long hair. I'm not, I'm not sure. Did you say to the healing aspect of it? I know I'm talking about like the movement effect. I mean, like the micro muscles in the scalp and, you know, brushing the hair and that sort of thing. Like the length actually helps to um, increase oh. the movement. Is that right? Yeah, um, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I've never really like I, I, they they put their hair the way that feels best to them. And we've always allowed them body autonomy in that way. But it's not for any particular reason, um, because I think that long hair is better for them. I mean, it certainly creates, it certainly creates movement, Mm -hmm. um, for sure. I don't know if it's a detriment, if it's shorter, the hair that I often talk about in terms of movement is our body hair. Um, the hair follicles on every single, uh, individual follicle that's distributed throughout the entire body. So when you're dealing with temperature regulation, that, those small micro movements of the hairs are definitely, they definitely play, they're definitely moving. They're another moving part. Your hair follicles are another uh, moving part, but but the decision that, that my children have made for their hair doesn't really have anything to do with their well-being. It's just simply their preference. Yes, cool. So can, I don't know if you could briefly describe like how those micro muscles in the skin, like on the tiny hair follicles, what is that doing? Is it, I guess, is it tough? Is it making our skin stronger? Is it making that more resilient to the um, environment? Uh, It's just, you know, you're, it's a, when you get cold, if you have, uh, they call them goosebumps Mm -hmm. in Australia as well, or the technical term is horripilation. It's this idea that 
um, sort of like other animals that have not lost their coat over a long period of time, that that your hair the, and the muscles, every single one of those hairs has its own muscle attached, that that the, act, the activity of those very tiny muscles, which are called erector pili, um, because they each muscle lifts or lets down every single individual hair follicle, that that's part of our, uh, how do I want to say it? Like our um, entire metabolic package. So as people are interested in their metabolic rates, and that's how much energy it takes, you know, to be that a human would expend being human, there's been a decline in our metabolic rate. And there's a lot of different reasons for why this has perhaps come about. But um, another element of movement that we've blocked ourselves from is in sort of a constant temperature maintenance, an artificial temperature maintenance. So, so um, that's you know, thermostats in your home. It's, it's, or it's more simply, it's never letting yourself get really, really cold or really, really warm. That, that idea that, um, those functions of our body have a purpose, they have a strength. And so as we climate control so many more of our environments, you know, I grew up in a time where there wasn't any air conditioners in a car and we certainly didn't have them in our house, we had fans that we could bring in, you know, as we needed, but as things get more technologically advanced and we're just moving from one ambient temperature to the exact same ambient temperature, those skills of thermal regulation, which is either being able to cool yourself or warm yourself are uh, movements that are lost. Um, and so they're also then caloric expenditures that are lost. So it's just an interesting piece of the physiological puzzle, if you will. Mm. That, yeah, see, that kind of leads us along to clothing. And after reading a few of your books and listening to your podcast, I've gradually altered my own wardrobe so that my clothes allow freedom of movement. I keep these things in mind with my children too. Like Even dresses and skirts I try to avoid now just because I've noticed how it affects their ability to climb and to crawl. So what advice could you share with parents who may be aware of how Shoes can restrict feet, but haven't yet grasped how clothing can also be restricting. Yeah, well, I mean, I think just just tuning into the idea of, huh, this is another greenhouse, you know, that our children are within. That's some sort of container that is blocking movement inadvertently. I mean, I don't think anyone is choosing clothes that don't allow their children to move. They're just really the styles mm. of the day. So just to recognize, I, in that book, I... I listed because there's so many different ways to think about it. Um, you know, we tend to think of tight clothes as um, perhaps, uh, let's think of a, a, a denim pair of trousers where you couldn't, where they were so stiff that you couldn't lift your leg up to maybe step over something. So maybe we've all experienced pants that don't let our legs rise mm. very high. But um, sometimes extremely loose isn't necessarily the best antidote. Yeah. So dresses, for example, very long dresses can restrict in a different way. They can get caught on things. Um, so, so there's not necessarily a perfect outfit as much as it is mm. to understand that the activities that your child, and this goes for uh, adults too, yeah. the activities that you would 
like that they would like to be do, doing or that you would like to be doing can be hindered by what you put on. So when you're selecting an outfit, the idea of taking it through a series of movement tests, not only does it, how does it look, but the fact that can your arms reach over your head? Could you bend down and touch the ground? Are your shoes firmly attached to your feet? Are they sort of slipping around so that you couldn't play a, a good game of tag or you couldn't uh, climb a, a tree well? And, and maybe you have the option of kicking off your shoes and doing it barefoot and maybe you don't because of weather or rules and then what's the next level of how do I select a shoe for traction, you know, to make sure that it is going to perform in a slippery environment, um, but also a more complex environment. So it's just to figure out what questions you should be asking your child and then how you could teach your child how to figure out how to optimize their daily outfit for what they want to do that day so that their clothing is never stopping a movement that they are wishing to be able to do from happening. Yes. I liked the example you gave. I think it was your son when he was in footsie pajamas. Yes, when he was a baby. Yes, and like just trying to stand up, but like the onesie, the the feet were like making him slip over. Yeah, like, and and this is before he could talk, right? This is when he was months old, but I realized that the very – conventional baby clothes of our time um, were interfering with his push-off that he needed to do to be able to stand up. So I could, if I had not been paying attention, just assume that my child wasn't ready to walk or stand, furniture walk or furniture stand. Mm. But really it was what I had put him in. I was seeing that he had the strength the desire, the computer program functioning, and it was what I had wrapped his foot in and what I had, the surfaces that I had provided him in our home that he was unable to stand because he was slipping. And I was like, oh, of course, he didn't come with these feety pajamas. This was a decision. This was a culturally informed decision. So I snipped all the feet off, all of his feety pajamas, and he was a walker from that point on. Um, And so I think that if you're not used to thinking in those terms of movement, all of the details and the nuance of tractions and things, we will come to erroneous conclusions about how well and when children um, can and are ready to move. Yes. And uh, yeah, I loved another um, story you've shared. I don't know if it was in your book or it might've been on your podcast about your daughter, how she likes to adorn herself but she also likes to climb trees so I think she I think her solution was to adorn herself with like drawings all over her body is that right (laughs) that's yeah that's I think that's probably a mashup of some stuff that's in the book and that's some stuff that's just been in me sharing maybe some of my parenting experiences but yeah she's definitely a adorner but she did realize early on that clothing specific clothing kept her from doing some of the things that she wanted to do. And she did spend quite a lot of time without clothes, but never without adornment. So yeah, she would just paint herself up before, (laughs) before heading up to the favorite tree. Nice. So now along these same lines of cultural restrictions and clothing, it comes like cold exposure and movement in different weather conditions. So I've already done an entire episode on cold exposure, so we don't need to go too deep today. But I would love to hear your thoughts and the practices, if any, that your own children do in cooler environments. 
Well, I, I think that we are just, my husband and I were just talking about this today because it is like I had told you before, um, coming onto the show quite stormy here today, rainy mm. and very windy. But our children, because their early childhood experience was a forest preschool and a forest kindergarten, they, um, they much like our other animals, uh, our sheep or some, or, and our dog, they don't really care too much about the weather outside. The weather being um, cold doesn't naturally make them assume that it's not an outside day because it's cold. They, they, are, they have had enough uh, cultural reinforcement that outside is perfectly fine to be in when in all weather. It's not a fair weather experience being outside or nature. It's it's something that's there for them all the time. So I think that they've had the exposure to it. And then, of course, they have uh, the exposure is both the psychological exposure. You know, sometimes people uh, um, will create a message with it without really realizing it that, oh, it's too nasty to go outside. It's too windy. It's too blustery. We won't be comfortable where our message was more like, well, we're going outside, so we need to be comfortable. And and so some of that comfort is psychological. Hmm. Um, and then, but the rest of the comfort, it would be uh, the, the, the physical hardiness that comes with being outside regularly. So that would be those strengthening those warming muscles. Um, and then of course, gear is to make sure that you have the right gear to move outside comfortably. Um, if you have all three of those things, then there's really almost no days where outside is not available to you, at least in part. Nice. I like that. Now, going slightly off topic from movement for a moment, you shared a post recently about celebrations, which was <laughs> timely for our family as it was right before my daughter's birthday. So I took some of your advice and we had the cake first before eating the rest of the food. There were definitely some cultural hurdles here for some of the attending guests. Can you share your thoughts behind why you celebrate with the cake first? Well, so all of our celebrations are outside mm -hmm. um, and, and, and some sort of dynamic activity. And so my experience as a parent was often uh, you know, dropping my kid off at a party and then I would be sent home as soon as I would pick up a, a child that had just had a massive dose of sugar and really no place to put their their energy, and I would assume the crash yes. uh, as, as sort of a tax for sending my child to a celebration. And I just thought, well, this this is me, this is this makes a celebration really not it, physiologically, they're not enjoying the crash as well as I, as a parent, am not enjoying the crash. So I just thought physiologically, what is the crash? Yes, it is a bunch of sugar with no place to go. And so how we structure our celebrations, this would just be an example of a birthday party where there's usually going to be some sort of sweet treat is, is and, and also I, I would realize that the children would sort of not engage with the first part of the, of the party because their minds were so caught up in this sugary treat or payoff at the end. So like they, they weren't even there. Like, When's the cake? When's the treat? And so they also were not maximizing the rest of the party. It had become so cake centric 
that the togetherness, the other elements of the celebration were entirely lost. Mm. So I said, okay, I'm going to serve the cake first. So I served the cake first, which immediately freed up the preoccupation of all of the children's minds. When is the cake happening? It's done. Now they had nothing left to do but play be physical, give that sugar some place to go. And then I feed them the nourishing food after that and send home children who have, who didn't have to have a crash because they got to put their sugar to good use, who got to fully engage with all of their other friends, not just engage in the anticipation of the cake and they still got the food. So it's just, there was no more work on my end. It was a simple rearrangement to sort of maximize the event for everyone, to make it better for a child's body, to make it better for the receiving aloe parent or parent on the other end. And I'm never going back because because it's it's only been 100% better than it was before. Yes. And I noticed like the difference in my own body. I'm like, oh, I feel so much better now having eaten all that protein at the end. It's so much better. <laughs> Now, in your book, you've written one of the other ways you incorporate more movement into celebration is through, you know, walking. By coincidence, our family celebrated each of our birthdays this year by going on an overnight hike as a family. But I'm curious how you incorporate walking into celebrating with other guests, particularly some who may not be so walking inclined, maybe with mobility issues or children who are too small to keep up. Um, Well, I guess there's a lot of different ways for it. We don't tend to do too many walking events. Um, like for birth, like I don't think I've ha- we haven't had a, a walking birthday party for a large group of people. Um, when we do do dynamic celebrations that include getting from point A to point B, um, we just will pick a path where if we have, you know, a friend who has a wheelchair or one child with a wheelchair where they can roll. So they're always walking slash rolling events. Um, we usually have a desk, like one of the things that we do is always, um, a gingerbread hike when it gets towards, um, what is, um, our Christmas time in December here. Um, Mm -hmm. and so the children will either hike, um, they, or, or drive in to meet us at the end spot um, where there is a table in the forest of cookies laid out on a table where they decorate, you know, two or three gingerbread cookies. Nice. And, and we also have soup ready to go on the fire. And then, and so, you know, my mom who is disabled, she will just drive in and be waiting at the table by the fire, having her soup, getting to enjoy the children, um, making all of the cookies. So she can be part of it, but she doesn't have to be part of the hike. So there's always that. And then that also goes well for um, if someone has children that are young and either can't do the entire thing or the parent can't carry them part way. We do a lot of co-carrying in our nice. little community group, you know, where we don't expect if you have a, a infant, we take turns carrying or sharing a lot of that physical labor as we will. And then you can also exit if you don't want to walk the two miles back out, but that's a great, um, that's been our, our cookie. That's how our children know holiday cookies is a, you know, a two mile walk into a forest to get a few and then a two mile walk back out. (laughs) And again, all the sugar just was left on the trail. So they got that, that holiday connection. So much of us really connect holidays with I think certain treats, but we always just layer it with lots of um, 
movement, again, to give the sugar some place to go, but to also give it to make sure that we don't reduce all the holidays just to treats, you know, to make sure that we can extend that celebration uh, beyond a, a plate of cookies or, you know, again, it's also you can make cookies and then walk them to all the people that you want to share them with. But but to your earlier question about uh, different ability is just to make sure that you plan an event that has different exit points so that someone doesn't need to do the entire thing um, is, is been, it's been the way that it's worked for us. We haven't had anyone unable to come to something um, because they can usually work with the scale of the event that we've offered, at least in our community. Yeah. And adults, I guess mobile adults, tend to walk, well, often tend to walk at a set pace. But are there different muscles involved in changing the speed of walking? It's a different, it's, it's, uh, how do I want to say this? Um, walking slowly is more challenging because there's more balance involved. So like, that's my, my answer would be if, if you were to set a line for 30 feet and you made yourself walk that 30 feet very slowly, what you would find is it's much more difficult because you have to stabilize yourself more. Same goes for a bicycle, right? If you're on a bicycle going very quickly, momentum really carries you from point A to point B. If you were riding quite slowly, you would find that you are falling more to the right or left. So it is more work um, in the sense that you have to do more of your own stabilization. So, I mean, a lot of our walks, most of I I walk every day without my children, but I also walk every day with my children Mm -hmm. for multiple miles. And they're just, they're just different. I guess they, they, it's not necessarily different muscles. Um, but it is, it, it could be a little bit, but it's more like how much you're working rather than which parts are being worked. Right. Now, um, I liked how in your chapter on celebration, you also wrote about uh, grief and how using movement outside with children and teenagers, like going on a nature walk, can help them to open up more effectively than sitting in a therapy session. Have I got that right? Yes. So that section was was written by a, a group called Wild Grief, um, which is a clinical organization where I live in um, Washington State. Um, and what so so grief is grief is something that we really need to embody. Um, and so it's like it's not only that we need to feel. Children especially, um, they really writhe with grief. Uh, they're very physical with our, with, with their grief. And I think uh, culturally, and I did a whole podcast on this about w- culturally, this particular culture, maybe it's Western culture has really taken all of the movement out of grief where in traditional cultures and really many other non-Western cultures, it's still intact. So you can see that grieving is often, um, very vocal, very physical. So lots of um, wailing, again, just writhing on the ground, um, dancing, like almost like thrashing your body around, you know, Mm. like there's a mechanical process to it that I hypothesize is actually essential to the process. But we, um, 
have have made it very a set again like everything sort of a sedentary process and so um for I'm not, I don't know how well it's worked out for grown-ups, but the sedentary process has not worked out well for children. Mm. And so wild grief, because because I think that maybe adults in their minds can can sort of um, convince themselves, you know, to sit and weep quietly, to to do it in isolation. You know, we have a hard we don't have a hard time connecting with community and doing anything that's really physically embodied because it's not necessarily supported. But children, especially very young children, they will express by hitting and like physical and like climbing on things and, and wanting to drop off, right? Like their body needs to metabolize these chemicals or this biochemistry that's happening. And so wild grief found that they could take children, you know, they work with all ages of children, but especially teenagers that are in this such precarious between, they're like in a, in a, in an age that's a combination of a child and adult. They're not really fitting in either category that if they could take them into nature, um, you know, on a, on an over, on a daytime hike, or they even do these longer two to three day hikes and get them to be physical and to get them to be in, in a natural setting where cycles of life are so much more clear and not in the greenhouse where we sort of deny our basic cycles of life and are trying to, you know, reverse and extend them. And like all, you know, like we have, we have such a cultural perspective on what it means to be alive. That's at odds with everything else in the natural world by us. I mean, humans, um, and and so by by getting out there, they're finding that these children could could better process or metabolize, move through their grief by literally moving through it. And I just love that section. That's why I'm going on and on about it because because I think grief is such a if you haven't had to deal with it, um, it's an underappreciated phase of life. And when it finally does come upon you, which it will, Mm. um, we're sort of blindsided by it because we have, we're not in doing, we're not grieving in community. We're not sharing in the grief of our community members very regularly. So, so that's, that's why I like that section. I was just hoping that it would touch maybe some people out there, some, some people who are dealing with children who are dealing with grief to maybe add the movement component to it and, and, um, and for therapists too, to start offering more dynamic grief therapy, hopefully modeled, um, on the wild grief procedures. Yeah. I really, yeah, I really like that you included that section in there because you often don't know when grief is going to be coming anyway. And I put it in celebrations because yes. it's another type of celebration. So that's why it's there. It's, it's just the spectrum of needing to drop emotion about something. So a grief to me is another celebration. It's yes. not only cookies in the forest, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now preparing for this interview, I've seen how much my own family's lives have been impacted through what I've learned from you. Another of these ways is that we all sit on the floor for most activities, including mealtimes. Now you've done full interviews and podcast episodes on being furniture-free, so I won't ask you to go too much into this, but can you share the benefits for the whole family of spending more time on the ground rather than in chairs or couches? It's uh, again, it's just for more movement, you know, Mm. chairs and couches really promote one uh, similar type of movement, one position over and over again. And by not having them, you just end up using many more 
body positions to do the same thing, which is to sit in a place to do a thing. Um, and, and I found by removing them, it just, you know, it just promoted things like leaping, like leaping and jumping and being creative about how you would use your body when you are, uh, in your home. So it was just simply to do that. If you fill the house with chairs, everyone will use them. If you remove the chairs, a lot of creative movement will ensue. Yes. Now, what about when you have guests visiting who find the idea of sitting on the floor a bit too uncivilized? Sure. Or, or even not able. It can yes. be a question of uh, ability as well. So yeah. And so we, I put that in our frequently asked questions on our furniture free page, cause it's a probably the most popular question. And so we have, um, a section of our house that offers guests a place to sit in the position in which they are most accustomed to. So my point is more, if, if you, if those listening did a, a ch- calculated the chair to butt ratio of their house, they would find that for the few bottoms that live in a house, there's, you know, an abundant number of places to set them. So even decreasing um, the number of seats is great. And, you know, I'm not sure how many people have, I don't, I'm, I'm not sure how many guests you would have at a time that would need that extra seat. So ours, you know, can seat, Oh, maybe f- up to four mm-hmm. bottoms. And then we also have, you know, again, like I said, my mother isn't able to sit on the floor. So we have, um, she actually brings a, a chair with her wherever she goes, <laughs> but you know, we have, um, a chair for her that we can bring out as we need to, but it doesn't need to be part of our main furniture. It's no hindrance. It's just extra movement to bring it out when we know she's going to be around. And she certainly doesn't want us to adjust our furniture to accommodate her in a more specific way than having a chair available for her as we have it. So that's what we've done. And what about talking around people whose mobility allows them to, but they're a bit reluctant just because it's not that common here? Sure. I mean, they can, they can sit on the same seats. Like the, the seats are, are there. Um, But I think that again, it's like you had said, it's sort of it's psychological. It's it's primarily psychological what we think we can do and what we think we can't do, and so um, it and the you know there's a certain pressure when you've got a bunch of people sitting all over the ground. There will be people who will just move to the floor to explore it simply because there's a group mm, uh, doing it. You know, so in this way, it's another way that I encourage movement by setting up unique environments that promote it. But again, it's never an environment that mandates that you do it there. It always offers a different option. It's just that my home offers more than one option to sit. Um, and so in that way, I view it as like a positive or a positive adjustment to the way most of our homes are set up, which is there is no place to sit except in a chair. Yeah. Now, along these same lines of sitting in a chair, I remember you talking about a visit you made to Amsterdam Body World and you observed something about males that made you say pelvis tucking is a real natural reflex to protect their testicles. Now, I heard the story over three years and it has stuck with me since then. Oh, yeah. That was a long time ago. Yeah. (laughs) 
Well, um, so that was a, um, what was it? So we were in Body Worlds in Amsterdam where I was teaching and uh, it was a, and so for those of you who don't know what Body Worlds is, it's it's like the inside anatomy of uh, human bodies featured in different ways. So in this particular way, it was uh, just the blood vessels, I feel, of a, of a, of a male squatting. And I could see that the testicles and the penis, I suppose, of the male were dropping straight down. And I was just thinking, oh, this is another reason why a chair, which it's so, so squatting is a quite normal and conventional way to take rest for for all of the world up into a certain up into a recent point and then it still is quite prevalent around the world just again not in um western cultures so so this idea that you go from a squat to a chair for or, or to a, from a from squatting to take rest most of your life to a chair you're the testicles being beneath you as you sit with your pelvis in a neutral position would smash your testicles. Mm. So in order to accommodate testicles, you would have to tilt posteriorly, which is to tuck your pelvis back and then sit down. And so I've worked with many, you know, 10,000 bodies in person over many years. And it's quite, it's common for and I, I haven't done an official study on it, but mm. but but it's but it's common that men that I'm seeing, you know, Western culture men will have a very posteriorly tilted pelvis that doesn't come well out of that position. And I was always just wondering, like, why why would a um, why would uh, a body with testicles, I, I, I mean, I used to think about it in those terms, like why would that be so much tighter in this position than a body without? And I, and then I realized like, oh yes, I, I wonder if it's tucking to accommodate testicles. I wonder if it's tucking to make com- sitting more comfortable and then you've done it since you were five, you know, or went into school for eight hours a day and we're sitting down that just, um, created that issue. So what I would need to do is go to a part of the world where squatting was the norm and look to see if the pelvic range of motion was greater in those areas. So it just, it was just one of those things like, oh yeah, this is another factor where your unique physiology in interaction with furniture could bring about a position that you didn't even realize. Like people are, I mean, I don't know if I'm not a, a man, and I don't know, I don't know if I've ever, like, I don't know what it's like to sit and then have to like readjust my body to sit comfortably. I've had to do it with my breasts when I'm pregnant or my pregnant body, you know, like mm. I've had to do it. I, I have had to adjust my body to be more comfortable in a physical environment, but only for a short period of time, not for, not for my whole entire life. So yeah, that's what that's about. But again, that was another interesting bit yes. dangling bit dangling. Yeah, I liked it. It was just a really interesting observation. Um, Now, moving along to sleep, can you share with us your family's sleeping situation? Um, We, well, the the recent one, because our kids have just sort of evolved out from our last one. But in general, we have gone from bed to 
like traditional bed that many people have to low futons um, on the ground. And then finally just to uh, sheepskin. We just sleep on sheepskin on directly on the floor. Mm-hmm. And um, what's the other thing? No pillow. Yeah. So that those are probably the non, the non-conventional things. And I, and I do those things for again, more movement, but um, it's, it's, different types of movement in this case. It's a greater amount of uh, what I call pressure deformation movements. Um, It's to be able to get down and up from the floor with regularity. And my body just feels so much better since we went to floor sleeping seven or eight years ago. That's great. Um, And then I guess, because you made a great Instagram video of this, of how you make and unmake the bed. That's not really, yeah. yeah. But hanging up the rug. So there's all that movement involved in that process as well. Well, and it was, and it was really for extra space. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I think we just, you know, it's definitely, I'm, I definitely lean towards uh, minimalism because I believe that minimalism of stuff is really maximalism of a lot of other things. So by being able to lift our bedding and hang it up, one, we did it out of um, essential need because, um, we live in the Pacific Northwest and we didn't want mold to grow on our floor, which was a problem that we had with some of our lower beds. So hanging up is, is, uh, something that we do. It's very practical, but the idea of like lifting and setting up your bed every day, there's just more movement built into the day. And then when it's picked up, you have a whole empty room for nothing but cartwheels or, <laughs> or, you know, doing a yoga class or like whatever it is that you want to do. It's this idea that, when you have an entire room or multiple rooms that are dedicated sort of just to holding a bed that you only use a portion of the day, that's again, that's not a common across the world Mm. thing. That's a a unique cultural thing. So I just wanted, we had a very small home um, earlier on, I think. And so it was just a way to have, you know, a full playroom without needing to have a bigger house. Yeah. Fantastic. Now, while we're still talking about sleep, I spoke to Gail Tully last year on spitting babies and movement in pregnancy and birth, but there was a pregnancy question I wanted to ask you specifically, because it seems very common in our culture, at least, that towards the end of pregnancy, sleeping is very uncomfortable, and the only way any of us manage to get through it is by propping ourselves up with pillows and cushions everywhere, including between our knees, and then still frequently needing to change positions and move the pillows again. But to me, it doesn't seem biologically normal that we should be needing to rely on so many things to support us in sleep. So the question that plagues me is, what sort of movements are we not getting enough of that are causing our bodies to struggle to sleep comfortably in pregnancy? All of them. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think it's just that. I mean, yeah. like this is a, like we're it's sort of trite, you know, we're like, oh, we're so sedentary. But to me, it's like, not trite. Mm-hmm. It's like we're moving a mere fraction of what we need to be doing. And our bodies are that, that the, the inability to sleep because of the physical discomfort, you know, often being on, you know, two feet of foam and cushiony surface to me that those are huge red flags for just how, um, how how unable to tolerate any sort of physical pressure we've gotten ourselves into. So, um, you know, our, our joints can't really handle, our, our joints are so used to being in one position most of the day, they really can't tolerate anything outside of that. So 
Um, I don't know if my, like, I, I'm just thinking briefly on my feet here, literally. Um, I don't think that I would skew my recommendations for non-pregnant bodies as I do for pregnant bodies. I mean, it's walking multiple miles a day. It's floor sitting in a variety of positions. It's being, um, keeping your upper body strength strong enough to hang from your own arms or mm. brachiate. Um, it's being able to carry, you know, a substantial load over some of those walking miles that you're doing. And, and if you were doing all of that, um, I would say that you would notice your physical discomfort going, going down. Yeah. I mean, it, it's just, I think of like nighttime discomfort really specifically as sort of all the underused parts, um, flashing their beacons of light at night you know they're sort of going hey guess what you forgot to do over here and over here and over here because at nighttime there's no distraction um you know I think we're in pain a lot of the times but we're so distracted by so many things we're not tuning into it too much and at nighttime is when all those distractions go away and then how we really feel comes to the surface and so um physical use in the daytime can really uh, halt some of those, like I think of like movement starvation signals. We don't really use that language when it comes to movement, but I, I believe that that's what we're dealing with. You know, someone tuned us into things like hunger pains and and other things, and no one's really tuned us into undermoved pangs or like movement hunger pangs. And I think that what we're getting quite a bit in the night um, when we're pregnant are those and and I and I why it makes an outlier is because you are dealing with like a sudden onset or relatively sudden onset of a lot of mass and so so if you uh, the the beauty I think of pregnancy um, is that you're you're the, you have the same capability of being extremely physically robust and so so you become even stronger than a non-pregnant person when you're moving a lot when pregnant. Um, and so what pregnancy does in a sedentary culture is is now makes being sedentary that much harder because you're having to be sedentary with the extra mass. And so my guideline, my physical guidelines for people who are pregnant is like move more than you ever did before. Hmm. Like this, this is not a time to cut back. This is the time to focus and add and make make moving more your primary objective with all of the free time that you have so that you are able to to do the marathon that's about to come up, as I said, and grow wild, which is, which is really not just the marathon of pregnancy and delivery, but it's, it's all the work that comes after while you are extremely fatigued. Become an athlete when you're pregnant is my advice. Nice. Cool. Now, movement is more than just exercise, but I'm sure there are parents out there who want to hear a little about kids' sports. Do you have a few words to say for parents who may be concerned about the footwear their children are, are required to wear for sports like football or soccer or ballet or things like that? No, I don't have a, I mean, I put this in the book too. There's a whole section for activities, um, which is mostly, not mostly sports, but often includes sports, I would say for most families. But no, I mean, it's like, um, you know, the, the footwear that you're wearing for your sporting activity is fine for that activity. Um, you just wouldn't want to wear it outside of that activity. Mm. Um, so, and you would want to um, make sure that, th I mean, this is why we don't only do sports for um 
movement so that we um, are getting a much more, it's like eating a food. Like it's just like, it'd be like feeding your child only one single food. Um, and there's a lot of different, they, in order to get all the nutrients that they need, there's a wider palette of food that's required. So the same thing goes for sports. When you're in a sport, it's one set of movements. You know, if you're in a particular footwear, it's one set of foot movements that go into those, um, sports. So you want to make sure that there's a more diversity in the movement foods they're being offered or, you know, even required to do as a family so that they've got a well-rounded movement diet. Right. Now, I'm quite curious about sports that favor a side like snowboarding or surfing, tennis, skateboarding. It isn't really realistic to switch sides to balance out the movement in these situations. So I would like to know your thoughts. Uh, same, same thing as as the other one. It's just like what happens is I think in many times we have a movement box that we want ourselves or our children to to check. And because we think quite simply about movement, it's like, hey, if they're out snowboarding all day um, or if they love, you know, going on a scooter to the skate park or whatever it is, we we allow that to be the only movement food that they eat. And so it's just that they need a greater di- diversity of movement. And, and that's, it's like balance. Yeah, balance doesn't have to happen minute to minute. Balance can happen over a day, over a week, over a month, over a year. And so you're just, you're thinking of it that way. So if you're, um, you know, you're doing a unilateral sport. I mean, even if you're surfing, you're still paddling. Yeah. I imagine that the one-footedness of surfing is almost negligible in terms of time for the physicality. Um, you know, what I would look more as like, okay, if you're just paddling with your arms all of the time, if you're surfing, your ride time is quite low compared to your paddling time, then I want to balance it with some lower leg strength. So maybe hiking, you know, maybe you're going to do some family hikes around it or whatever it is. And, and I, there's a whole... Um, uh, what do I want to say? It's a chart on my website that goes with that activity section in the book where you can fill in all of the activities and figure out which would be the balancing activities. And you're welcome to link to that in the show notes if you want to. Yeah, well, thanks. Now, because the loads are buoyant, how effective is swimming as a natural human movement? Oh, well, swimming is a is a, I mean, I feel like there's so much there's 70% water on this planet. Like we should all be swimming, um, regularly. It's just, again, it's a food. It's, it's like, how effective is it? It's, it is a natural movement food. It is not a natural movement diet. It needs to be there and it can't make up everything. Cool. Now, where would you prefer people to buy your books, you know, like Grow Wild from your website? Well, I would imagine most of your listeners in Australia, so it would probably New Zealand, be, sorry. <laughs> uh, sorry, I'm sorry, New yeah. Zealand. So it'd probably be uh, less expensive for them to order it through uh, Ingram or places that um, bring it very close to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's for the paperback. But if you want to do the ebook or the audiobook, which we have um, both, then you can get that from nutritiousmovement.com. Cool. I will put links in the show notes to your books, your Nutritious Movement website, podcast, and your Instagram page. Where else can I send people who would like to learn more about what we've discussed today? That's it. I mean, like, it's either that or my house, yeah. and I don't have enough <laughs> seats for everybody, so so that's where you'll have to go. All right, Katie, wow, this is an interview I've been looking forward to for a very long time, and you have certainly not disappointed me. Thank you so much for taking the time to 
talk to me and share your knowledge with us today. Well, I appreciate how long you must have been reading everything because you have clearly been following and having good questions stored over a long time. So thanks so much for this interview. (laughs) Yeah. Now, my final question for you to end on is if the entire world's knowledge was lost and you could only leave one sentence for future generations, what would it be? It would be, um, you'll figure it out. If you enjoyed this episode, you can join the discussions on our Facebook and Instagram pages. To hear more, subscribe for free on the podcast app on your smartphone. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and all of your favorite podcast platforms. If you would like to offer feedback or suggest a guest, email us at untaming.podcast at gmail.com.